And uh, so please make note of that. And next week, we start our two-service schedule. So please, please make note of that as well. So um, starting next week, first service will be at 9 o'clock. Second service will be at 10.45. Get this right. Make sure I'm looking at the notes. 10.45. The live stream, for those of you who are live streaming, it'll be at 10.45. We'll have a prayer meeting in between the two services, so we'd love for you to join us for that as well. Um, And if you haven't been here the past few weeks, we've announced that a bit. Um, But just again, the the purpose of the two services is to just create some space in the auditorium as things get a little little too crowded in there for the kind of space that we have. And so, um, especially for the first service, uh, would like to ask you to be a bit more mask conscious, all right? And so um, please consider that. Children's ministry up to kindergarten will take place in that second service, all right? So I get to preach the word. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Father God, thank you. Thank you that we can be outside. Thank you that it's not raining. Thank you for that breeze that occasionally blows through here. Lord, I thank you for your church. I thank you for the body of Christ that has gathered this morning, Lord, to hear your word preached. Please bless now the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna be in Isaiah 66. This is our last sermon in Isaiah. Started somewhere back in September of last year. Um, Here we are, the last sermon in Isaiah. What a dear friend Isaiah has been. title this morning is, but this is the one to whom I will look. But this is the one to whom I will look. Let's go to France, 1700s, an enlightenment writer, philosopher, Voltaire. Voltaire, as a response to human tragedy and suffering that was around him and which included death, had this to say, no reasonable person can believe in God. How could a good and powerful God create a world like this? No reasonable person can believe in God. That means that many of you here this morning are not reasonable. Um, Voltaire was in conflict. Uh, He thought, you know, if God is good, then clearly he's not all-powerful because if he was all-powerful, he would do something here. Or if God's all-powerful, clearly he's not all-good. Maybe he has the power to do something, but he doesn't have the goodness to know what it is to do. Because look around you, look at the suffering. Clearly God is not good or not all-powerful or perhaps for Voltaire, he's not either. And what Voltaire and so many today miss in that idea is the sinfulness of man. God is good and God is all powerful, but man is sinful. And the mess that the world finds itself in, in his day and in our day is a result of humanity's sin and the absolute rejection of God a good and all-powerful God, humanity 
to a large extent, rejects him. Actually, what Voltaire further missed is that the good and all-powerful God did something about the mess that this world is in. That's the whole point of Jesus' virgin birth, which we will begin to celebrate in two weeks from today. We start the Advent season. Believe it. <laughs> it's here. In two weeks, we will begin that. His virgin birth, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection is a display of the goodness of God and the power of God to come and deal with humanity's mess. And those who come to repentance and faith are made new. We've been talking about that, that we are a new creation in Christ. And we are awaiting his return in which he will recreate the heavens and the earth. That was Isaiah 65. But until that time, we live in the here and now. We live on this side of eternity. We live in a sinful world, and this sinful world is indeed a mess. Here in the last chapter of Isaiah, with all the previous 65 chapters, Isaiah now unpacks for us to whom God looks. So let's dive into our text. Point number one, buildings and activity and the one to whom God looks. Verse one, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And what is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things, it's appropriate for us to be outside right now. All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. These verses begin to unpack for us to whom God is looking. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But it's helpful for us to explore that. Who, who does God look to? And that's unpacked for us by showing us firstly what God is not looking to and where we so often we look to. Um, begins in verse one. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth's my footstool. It's just a picture of the transcendence of God. It's, 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 it's a helpful picture, right? It's, it's, it's this idea that scripture does throughout scripture to help us wrap our small created brains around the glory, the transcendence of our God. Uh, and as scripture tries to do that for us, it, it helps us. Heaven, heaven's my, my, uh, my what? Not my footstool, my throne. And earth is my footstool. You're, you're living on the footstool of God, right? Like when, when God wants to describe where he kicks his feet up, right? Like the earth. It's just a helpful picture for us to get a sense of the glory, grandness, transcendence of God. This is where God kicks his feet up. This is the greatness of God on display, verse number one. But the irony shows up in the middle of verse number one. Did you hear? What is the house? Like this is my transcendence 
And in light of my grandness, my greatness, what is the house that you would build for me? We ought to pause there and just note as he goes, as he goes further, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be Declare the, declares the Lord, just that, that glory of God. And so the, the, the irony is all that is, is because of God. And here we are uh, building a house for the Lord. And he's saying, well, you know, com- com- compared to his workmanship, I'm sorry, did I, did I miss something? Did, did I miss something that you've created for me? irony there in the text the house that you put all your efforts into I can't seem to find it from the perspective of God who makes the entire earth his footstool it's not that he's saying here that he despises the house that you build for him it is that he's saying the house that you build it misses the mark It's not to whom or it's not to what God is looking. We are easily impressed with our buildings, right? We live in a culture that's easily impressed with the church building, the the church facility. Um, We don't, we don't at Trinity, we don't want to be a building driven church. What is a building or what is architecture to God, the creator of the entire universe who makes earth his footstool? A couple times I've had the opportunity to tour uh, Notre Dame, the Lady of Paris. It's such an impressive building. If you ever find yourself anywhere near Paris, go ahead, plan on, wait, in the line for however many hours to view the inside of the building. It's impressive. 13 million people visit Notre Dame every year, except for this year. (laughs) Not so many this year for reasons beyond COVID. 13 million people though, on a typical year, visit Notre Dame. Why? Well, because it's it's amazing. It's incredible. The architecture is incredible. Construction began on Notre Dame in 1163. And 182 years later, they put down their hammers. They finally finished. Imagine if I said to you today, Trinity's going to build a new building. And it's going to take us about 180 years, give or take a few. Let's get started. I mean, it's just incredible the effort that went into building that building 182 years later. And now we stand in line to get inside to see it because we are easily impressed with lesser things. We look to buildings and we don't, as a culture, we don't look to hearts. We look to buildings, not hearts. But from God's perspective, hearts, not buildings, is what he looks to says there in the middle of verse two. Let's back up to the start of verse two. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. 
He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God, God isn't saying here that he's opposed to our buildings. Again, he's not despising the buildings. It wasn't for, for Solomon. Um, he's not saying, Solomon, I don't want your building. No, it's appropriate for Solomon to build the building. His, his people here, the exiles, they'll return from Babylon. They'll return to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, and what? Rebuild the building, the temple, the house of the Lord. He isn't saying that those exiles shouldn't do that. The text isn't telling us next week, Trinity, you should meet outside again. Glad we don't have to do this in July in Florida. Grateful, right? That's why we bring you outside. So that you'd be grateful for air conditioning. Praise be to God. Like, I love the first song. I turned to Tanner at the end of the first song. Praise him for the clouds. I, I praise him for the, the moon and stars and sky. And I was just like, praise him. The cloud just rolled in and was like, yes, praise him for the clouds. Now we're, we're grateful for the building. We're called to steward the building. We want to take good care of the building. We want to do things that, that make the, the building attractive, especially um, for guests and that's just being stewards of the building. But the text is telling us he looks to hearts, not buildings. We, we'd never be able to build a building that God would, would then go, wow, now that got my attention. To the Lord who makes the earth his footstool, we could never create a building of such glory and splendor that God would say, now you've got my attention. It's not what he looks to. Why would he, creator of the universe, look to our buildings? But the text is saying he's looking to hearts, not architecture. Humility, not facility. Contrite driven, not building driven. Word trembling, not building trembling. But there's always a temptation in us to make something more of things that we make, things like buildings. We're so easily impressed with ourselves and here God is saying, it's not about the building, it's not about the architecture, it's about the hearts of my people. And so first of all, he says, this is the one to whom I look, he who is humble, humble, lowering oneself before God, recognizing the glory of God, the vastness of God, the greatness of God. God, you are what's great. Contrite, meaning literally lamed in spirit would be an appropriate way. He looks to the humble. He looks to the lamed in spirit, or we can even think of it like handicapped in spirit, which, which means what? It means, it means incapable in spirit, unable, recognizing I am completely dependent. I am unable in spirit, but I am dependent on you. Trembles at his word. Trinity that our prayer would be, God, God, help us to tremble at your word, tremble at your word. We so sit under your word. We submit ourselves to your word. We want to build not buildings. We want to build hearts that are trembling at the very word of God. So he says in verse three and four, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. Oop, hello. is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. What is he talking about here? 
He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. What is Isaiah doing there? He's putting legitimate forms of worship next to pagan worship. And he's saying, this exterior form of worship is just like pagan worship. Let's say it a little different. This religious exterior expression, this offering of frankincense, right? That'd be a good thing, right? This outward religious expression of worship, your heart's not engaged. It's no different than pagan worship is what he's saying here. One can have the right look of worship. One can have the right exterior look of worship. But he's saying it's just like the man who kills a man. Or one who blesses an idol. You see, church, we can have the right look. We can put the right look, the religious look on ourselves. We can clothe ourselves with that look. And yet next to the pagan person who's just outrightly rejecting God and worshiping pagan idols, Isaiah's saying they're one and the same. They're just like each other. You can build a great building. It can have the nice look. You can put on the nice look on yourself. We can do nice religious things in a religious house of worship and you can have the external form of worship all down but if these exterior things are divorced from trembling at his word then they're just things and yet that is so often the things that we find ourselves pursuing or even being impressed in or with You can have all the best buildings and you can have all the right religious looking trappings. You can have all the religious feel of worship. And guess what? People will even flock to that. All the while we can be missing what matters most to whom the Lord looks. What kind of church Trinity, do you want to be? Do we want to be building-driven, religious-looking? Or do we want to be a people who are trembling at the very word of God? Isaiah is showing us here that the religious buildings and religious activity is just like the pagan rituals. And if we're not humble and contrite and trembling at his word... We've missed the point. Now at that point, right, like we're outside and it's a little noisy, but I think if we were inside, if I know my church, like I think everybody's saying amen. Amen. We want to be a people who are trembling at the word of God. Amen. (laughs) Right? And so we roll into the next point. I hope with a sense in our hearts going, amen. We don't want to be about buildings. We don't want to be about religious exterior 
trappings. We want to be a people that are trembling at his word. Amen. Point number two, those who tremble at his word will be persecuted. And so if your heart is genuinely saying, amen, sign me up for that trembling at his word thing. I need to let you know, you should expect persecution. Verse number five. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. You who say amen to this. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. Hear the word, the, the, the true worshiper or the word trembler ought not to be surprised by the persecution that the word trembler experiences for the sake of his name. He says, they will cast you out for the sake of his name. Here's a new news flash. If you're a Christian, you can expect persecution. You can anticipate it. You can expect to be rejected for his name's sake. Now we're living in America. And so, so we go, but wait a minute, we're, this is America. Newsflash, countries are not Christian. This country is not Christian. A country is not worshipers of God. Newsflash, this country is anti-God. The vast majority of our country are not word tremblers. And we know that, right? They're not word tremblers. Now I'm grateful if I pulled out a coin, my coin will say, in God we trust, but you recognize the majority of our country trusts more in the coin than in the God that we profess on the coin. I know that the country was founded on Christian principles, but that doesn't make America Christian, and especially in 2020. So believer in Jesus, tremblers of his word, you ought to be ready to suffer for his sake. And as I shared last week, I believe in the next years, there will be more persecution brought to the church than we've ever experienced in our lifetimes. Based on what? Based on your trembling of this book, your convictions wrapped up in this book. Actually, the more you tremble at his word, the more you will be called to suffer for his namesake. You see the word, the Bible divides. Some in hearing the word will be attracted to the word. Some in hearing the word will be repulsed by the word. And there's gotta be a level of, maybe I could say comfort with that. 
that we're okay with that. You see, for the church to preach the word or for the church to be, like, it's, it's interesting to talk about like wh- what makes a church successful. Like so often we define success in the church is, is based on people in seats. It's never how we're gonna define success at Trinity. We want to define success at Trinity at being faithful to the word. And when you're faithful to the word, it'll track some and some will leave. And you've got to have the conviction that in both cases, the word did its job. It's doing what the word does. Do we have a scripture for that? 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ, hear this, to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So it's, it's presenting these two different categories, those who are being saved, those who are perishing, you're the aroma of Christ. To one, a fragrance from death to death. Ugh. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Success in the church isn't filling up a building. Success is faithfulness to the word. And when we preach faithfully, some will be added to the church. Some will reject the church. Some will reject the teaching of God's word. In both cases, the word has been successful. You see, the world would love to make Christianity be about some exterior religious things. Is that all there is to it? Just some religious exterior things? Just give me the few things that I need to do. Things like listed there in Isaiah. Let's reduce Christianity down to a building and some exterior religious practices. And again, God's not after our buildings or our religious practices. He wants more than that. He wants all of you and me. He wants our hearts. He wants a heart that sits and trembles at his word. The humble, contrite, and those who tremble at his word are are not welcome by this world because we're trembling, because we have a different authority that we submit to. And thus, we will be persecuted Because asking God to come, chapter 64, and rend the heavens and come down is a prayer that God would come and change hearts, transform hearts. It's not what pagans and it's not what religious people want. So Matthew, Jesus speaking, says this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account for his namesake. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. First Peter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Can, can I just appeal to you? Don't be surprised this year when the fiery trial comes upon you for being a trembler at his word. When it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But, in, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. Friends, there's, there's easier ways to do church. Maybe I'm preaching some of you out of the church to another church. <laughs> like there's easier ways to do church. If you go for the religious exterior you'll be far more accepted by this world than being a trembler at his word. We can water down the word. We can take the edges off the sword, if you will. And we can live out our days in our comforts or we can be, or we can say, let's be the church who trembles at the very word of God. Well, number three, surprise, surprise, on the other end of that spectrum, those who tremble at his word should expect you're not going to believe I'm going to say this. Prosperity. Tim, you've turned into a prosperity gospel preacher. No, I've not. There will be persecution now, and there will be prosperity later. Sign up for the persecution now, which is temporary, light, momentary, Paul would say so that you might have prosperity later. No, I'm not suddenly a prosperity teacher, and yet I guess maybe I am. The prosperity gospel gets it wrong, and the prosperity gospel gets it right. They just fall woefully short of the prosperity. In a sense, they dream too little. Maybe that'd be a way to put it. Isaiah is looking through the corridor of time at past, past the persecution of now to the end of the age. And the church is described here as a mother giving birth without pain. Look at verse seven. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered her son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? She not only gives birth to a child, she gives birth to a nation in verse number eight and does so without pain. What is that? Offspring. Last week's sermon, just recall last week, it's children. What's being described here? The, the, what's being described is that the gospel is advancing in such large ways that new births are happening without pain. never have realized how many airplanes take off from behind us. It's amazing. A widespread multitude of people are being converted to Christ through the church. That's what's being described here. And that is the kind of prosperity preacher I want to be. Sign me up for that. And that's where the prosperity gospel falls so woefully short. Who cares? Who cares about the nice 
stuff of this world? Who cares about greater wealth? Who, who in the, who, why would we care to give to the Lord to then get some sort of financial gain from the Lord? I want to be a pastor who trembles at his word and that the, the word would come and the gospel would come in such great power that even in the midst of the persecution, there's a prosperity that there's an offspring, that there's a new birth that takes place in the persecution through his bride, the church. It's an amazing picture that Isaiah is unpacking for us. Verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem, be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with, joy, with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. It's, it's, it's the Lord saying, I will comfort you. Not because the church is so great, not because the, the church has got it all figured out and it's all put together, it doesn't. It's because God is so great. God, not the church, is what's transcendent in chapter 66. And so here the church, though, is that mother who has more than enough milk. Her children are content and satisfied. Verse 18, for I know their works and their thoughts and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and shall see my glory. Wow, that's some prosperity preaching coming from the book of Isaiah. And I get it. Thank, thank you for being here. I get why so many Christians are fed up with church and with church life. And so many want nothing to do with her. I do. I get it. I've been there. Have we, has anybody, anybody here not been there? Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. Who of us hasn't been there? But this, this is not the end of the story. We don't live for this day in an ultimate sense. Here the church is displayed rejoicing in the abundance and the prosperity, the lavish prosperity of God. If I could have the worship team join me, wrap things up. Point number four is false worship will be dealt with. And that's really in the closing verses. Religion thinks I'm a good person. Judgment will come for, for those bad people. That's what judgment's for. It's for the bad people. But I'm certainly not the bad person after all. Look at my external appearance of religion. Look at the good things that I do out there. Ray Ortland says, all self-sanctification and self-purification are to God pagan and nauseating. He will put an end to, to it all through Christ. Do we realize that when we pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth, we're praying for the end of religion, the end of the world? We're praying for the fiery, fiery holiness of God to burn away all our idolatries. No more pig's flesh offered as worship. Only a trembling sincerity to hear God's word. That is the future of the world and God uses his true people to bring in 
that future. Look at verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Verse 24, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me for their worm, their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. I don't know about you, but when I read that this week, I thought, wow, that's a weird way to end the book. <laughs> huh? What? <laughs> really? The worm, the... Isaiah, where are you going here? Think big picture, Isaiah, for a moment with me. The book began, see if I can do this in the wind. Almost there. The book begins, listen how the book begins and how the book ends. Chapter one, verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Says the Lord, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly, your new moons and your appointed feasts. My soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. The book begins by confronting the false worship of God's people. Remember how we started the book? We we're like, this is not a book for the world. You remember that? It's a book for the church. It's written to the church in Isaiah's day. It's written to the church today. He's not, he's not confronting the world for their offerings and sacrifices. He's confronting the church for its religious exterior practices. Chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, give, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Chapter 66 at the end. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. And then that odd verse 24. He's closing up the book by showing us that the eternal destiny of those who reject him is nothing less than judgment. It's been a theme, right? All through the book. And so it's appropriate for him to one last word. Judgment awaits those who refuse to humble themselves, to repent, to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. It's eternal judgment, verse 24, that's on display. Because to reject God, to reject his offer of salvation, to reject his word is to reject God.
It's to reject his offer of salvation, his offer of heaven, and it is to embrace his judgment. It is to embrace hell itself. Are we too good? Are we too religious to embrace Christ's offer of himself and of heaven? So sadly, hell will welcome all those who were religious and yet rejected God and his word. Christ came and he died to offer you eternal life. Praise be to God. Let's stand together and let's sing in response to him.